Let's open our Bibles together to Hebrews chapter 4. Hebrews chapter 4. As we continue our verse by verse understanding of this blessed epistle. Really, much of it is reads as if it's a sermon. And indeed, I think that's how it was intended by the original inspired author. Hebrews chapter 4, we find ourselves today seeking to cover verses 14 to 16, but to help us kind of set the context of where we're at, let us begin reading with verse 11 down to verse 16. Hebrews chapter 4, verses 11 through 16, hear the word of the Lord. Let us labor, therefore, to enter into that rest lest any man fall after the same example of unbelief. For the word of God is quick and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the dividing asunder of soul and spirit and of the joints and marrow, and is a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. Neither is there any creature that is not manifest in his sight, but all things are naked and opened unto the eyes of him with whom we have to do. Seeing then that we have a great high priest that is passed into the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our profession. For we have not a high priest which cannot be touched with the feeling of our infirmities, but was in all points tempted like as we are, yet without sin. Let us therefore come boldly unto the throne of grace that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. And may the Lord bless the reading and the hearing of His Word. Let's go to Him in prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank You, O God, for just the wonderful time that we have had thus far. Lord, hearing Your Word, being pointed to Christ, remembering the blessed work of our Savior and our surety in that work by Your Supper. And we now ask You, O God, to come once again and minister to our souls as we seek to hear Your voice speak to us through Your Word. We bless You, Father, and we thank You for the privilege of coming and being gathered together as Your sons and Your daughters to hear the reading and hear the preaching of Your Holy Scriptures. Blessed be Your holy name. Come and help us, we pray now. In Jesus' name we ask all these things. Amen. 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 There is a precious biblical truth that is contained in many of the historic confessions and catechisms that we often look to sometimes to help us to navigate through all of the information that's in the Bible. And there is one precious biblical truth that comes to us from the Westminster Shorter Catechism in question number one that I think wonderfully weds together the two things that we have in verses 14 and 16 today in our text. Let me share with you that question. The question, many of you probably already know it, it asks this question, what is the chief end of man? What is the chief end of man? The answer is man's chief end is to glorify God and to enjoy Him forever. To glorify God and to enjoy Him forever. The reason that I say that these true truths of our chief end as men, mankind, is so wonderfully brought together in verses 14 and 16 of our text today, is because knowing God through His Son Jesus Christ comes jumping off the page here. He is Jesus, the Son of God, the great high priest that has entered into the heavens. He has passed through the grave. He's passed through the veil of death. 
And he is right now, as the writers already taught us in chapters 1 and chapter 2, sitting on the very throne of God. We saw that when he refers to him as sitting at the right hand of the Father, and we properly handled that. Beloved, Jesus, his promised eternal Messiah, as we saw in Isaiah this morning, is sitting on the throne. To God be the glory. By me just simply reading those words this morning, God has been glorified. He has in plain language told us that Jesus, man, Son of God, and God is in heaven. He's glorified. But the chief end of man also is not just that we know Jesus is the Son of God, And the fact that He has risen from the dead, it is setting in the heavenly places as we speak right now, but that we enjoy Him. We enjoy Him. And so with all of my creaturely ability, I will seek by the very help of God to present to you this glorious truth That not only is Jesus sitting at the right hand of God, sitting on the throne of God, very God of very God, He is there and He is watching, caring, and superintending every step that you take as one of His pilgrims that's left here on this earth. And it is only by the Spirit's ability will He take these truths And He will, as if it were a match, throw it on a saturated heart that is doused in gasoline and ablaze them for you and make them powerful for you because only He can do that. I pray that He does that because last week, as we began to enter in this last paragraph of chapter number 4, we saw that through chapter number 3 and all the verses 1 through 10 in chapter number 4, we were given that exhortation to labor, work, that you enter into the heavenly rest, that Sabbath rest that's held forth in verses 1 through 10. And I told you that there's two encouragements now that this concerned minister, this preacher, this inspired apostle is going to give the church to help them propel forward I said they were encouragements. They were promptings. The first one was a proper understanding of the nature of the Word of God and God Himself. That He's omniscient. You cannot ignore the preacher was saying through this sermonic letter the exhortations and the threatenings and the warnings and think that somehow or another you're going to stand before the thrice holy God on the day of judgment and they're not going to be brought forward. Today's the day, he was repeated through this letter. Today's the day, harden not your heart. How, how, how ironic is it not that we read in Isaiah this morning, we went over to Acts 13, and then A.J. read in Matthew 23, showing how that was the continual exhortation to the Jews, the first century Jews that is, that Jesus came to minister unto. He was basically saying the same thing. Paul was saying the same thing. Harden not your hearts. Today's the day of salvation. And to help us to to kind of be propelled to move forward and and break out of any sort of passivity Christianity. He, He shows us that the Word of God is a discerner of your thoughts. As A.J. read Matthew 23 this morning, you could fool everyone on the outside like the Pharisees were doing. But God, with His Word, it's like a penetrating x-ray and it comes down to the very crevices of every thought that we have and it exposes it. It exposes it. And I don't know about you, beloved, but even on my best day, when I read the Word of the living, powerful God, I'm deduced down to nothing less but a worm. Even on my best day, I've yielded to the promptings of the Spirit and I've held my tongue and I've did this act of kindness and so forth and so on. And then you'll open up to the Word of God and it'll be like an x-ray on an area of your life that you know, you know you're not walking in faithfulness. And it exposes, it manifests your weakness, doesn't it? But we come to the second encouragement today in verses 14 and 16. 
And that is to show us that as the Word of God, yes, is intended to open you up and cut you to the quick, it's not intended to leave you in the ditch of despair. It's not intended to weigh you down with all of your failings. It's meant to be a help and a guide. It's the Word of God. It is that which He has left here in this earth as His authority to establish in your life a road map so that you can be ensured as long as you stick close to it, you will enter into that heavenly Sabbath rest. And so we come to verses 4 and 16 and where we just come out of verses 12 and 13 with that sobering examination of God's Word and its function and what it does, we think to ourselves, why does the writer put this here? I mean, when you're reading your Bibles, you ought to ask those kind of questions. I mean, he's coming through down chapter 3 and chapter 4, and he's given these warnings, he's given these threats, he's given these exhortations. Then he tells you, don't even be deceived because the Word of God, it sees all things. God Himself sees all things. And then he points us to the great high priest, Jesus Christ. What? That's an interesting way to conclude this section of the letter. I was somewhat expecting something else. Oh, but don't you see what he's doing? Don't you see what he's doing? He's cultivating in the hearts of this first century church a proper balance of the Christian life, beloved. He's saying, yes, there's times where you will be uh, convicted. You will be chastised by your loving Heavenly Father through His Word. Oh, but as you're on the brink, stepping ever so close, looking at your own failures, the Word of God coming in and, and shining light, a spotlight as if it were on your own failures, and you're about to fall off that ditch of despair, He points us away, doesn't He, from ourselves. And He gives us as Christian pilgrims in verses 4-16, through 16, wonderful encouragements. Wonderful encouragements. On our journey, in verse 11, to enter in that heavenly rest. And so today I've entitled my message, The Encouragement for Pilgrims. And I have what I believe are four encouragements from verses 4 through 16 that I want us to just stew on, meditate in, as it will prepare us moving forward in the uh, letter of Hebrews from chapter 5 to chapter 10, focusing on Jesus Christ as our high priest. So really what verses 4 and 16 do, they purposefully encourage us at this point of his letter, but at the same time, it begins to prepare our minds to focus upon Christ as our high priest, which is he, which he is going to establish for upwards to five chapters. And so we're going to be swimming in the truths of Jesus Christ as our mediator and our high priest and the establishment of the new covenant for months to come. And I don't know about you, but I can't think of anything else that's better to swim in and to marinate in than the truths of what we're seeing in a little small snapshot today in verses 14 and 16. That we have a great high priest, the very Son of God, who now sympathizes with us and is mediating for us in heaven at the very moment we're called to persevere, to labor unto the end. It is some of the most faith-establishing, soul-edifying text in all of the Bible. And I hope that we, by God's help, see it as such. Well, the first encouragement for today that this inspired preacher gives us as coming out of verses 12 and 13, weary, despondent pilgrims. At least I hope, beloved, that's how you walked away last week. I hope none of us walked out of here last week of looking at verses 12 and 13 and said, I'm okay, you're okay. Jesus, you know, he's, he's okay too, right? No, I hope we all walked out of here going, man, that word is so true. It is so true. I, I, I don't even know why Jesus saved such a wretch like me. 
Beloved, that's a good place to be in. Despite what modern Christianity tells you, that's a good place to be in. AJ talked about it in, in, in Matthew 23. That's, that's called humility. Your lips are closed before the sovereign throne of God and His Word, and, and you're quiet. And in your silence, and as you're in your corner, reflecting right on the truth of what was mentioned in 12 and 13, now come to verses 14 and 16 and be encouraged. Be encouraged. The first encouragement comes by us noticing in verse 14, really what it's teaching is Jesus is awaiting our arrival. Seeing then that we have a great high priest, here it is, that is passed into the heavens. Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our profession. I have three encouragements, as you see in your handouts, that I want to bring from this text. Well, after being dreadfully awakened by the penetrating reality of God's Word and its function in verses 12 and 13, of removing all of our external excuses of disobedience and thereby exposing all of the weak areas of our faith as pilgrims. Now the inspired writer, he seems to pull us back from the brink of despair, doesn't he? And he points us to the Lord Jesus Christ. Martin Luther, in his commentaries on the book of Hebrews, he noticed this too. He says, after terrifying us, the apostle now comforts us. But notice how that He comforts us. He does so by directing our eyes away from our doubtings, away from our suspicions of God's promises to give us, in verses 1-10, through His promised rest, His Sabbath rest, His future heavenly rest. He points us away from our doubtings and suspicion that God can do that, which was the fatal error, as He's been using the analogy of the wilderness generation, it was their fatal error, He points us away from our own doubtings. And even, beloved, coming out of 12 and 13, He points us away from our own failures of God's Word. And He points us to who in verse 14? He points us to our possession in the great high priest, the Lord Jesus Christ. And so here in verse 14, He begins by emphasizing and describing, notice with me, how we have We own this great high priest. That's what's referred to when he says in the language, seeing then that we have. We own. We have a possession. And would you agree with me that it's the most privileged possession that it can ever be owned? Much more precious than any pearl, any ruby, anything in the the, the whole wealth, combined wealth of this world is this great high priest that's in heaven that is yours. He says that we own it. But the encouragement comes as we reflect on this statement that we own this high priest for the weary pilgrim, is to recall, how did you receive that possession? Recall for a moment with me, how you received Christ, that he may be called in verse 14, your great high priest. Well, to do, to do so, just a brief memory lesson here. Let's turn back one page in our Bible to chapter 2 of Hebrews. And let's look at verses 10 through 17. Because it will remind you how you were given this great high priest. Chapter 2, verse 10. You may recall the infinite wisdom of God being mentioned here. For it became Him the Father. Meaning, you recall, it was His It was His wisdom that devised this plan, Nolan. It became Him. It was fitting for Him. It seemed wise for Him. For whom are all things, by whom are all things, in bringing many sons unto glory, that's you and I, to make the captain, that's Jesus, of their salvations perfect through sufferings. Oh, we're remembering now, right? Our memories are being jolted. We're remembering how we were made to possess such a privileged Savior, such a privileged high priest. It was by the wisdom of God that He would bring us into this status of owning Christ by the suffering and the death of the great captain of our salvation. Continuing on, verse 11, For both He that sanctifieth and they who are sanctified are all of one. That precious union between Christ and His church. For which cause? 
He is not ashamed to call them brethren. Okay, now do you remember the echoes of Christ, the redeemed, the redeemer of his weak, beggarly children? I'm not ashamed to call them my brethren. You remember that? We're going somewhere with this. Verse 12, saying, Christ speaking here, I will declare thy name unto my brethren. In the midst of the church, I will sing praise unto thee. And again, I will put my trust in him. And again, behold, I and the children which God has given me. For as much then as the children are partakers of the flesh and blood, he also himself likewise took part of the same, that through death he might destroy him that had the power of death, that is the devil. Jumping down to verse 17, Wherefore in all things it behooved him to be made like unto his brethren, that he might be a merciful and a faithful high priest in things pertaining to God. Here it is, to make reconciliation for the sins of of the people. You see, the encouragement here by just looking and observing that we have a possession in the great high priest, the Lord Jesus Christ, begins, that encouragement begins, by God's all-powerful mercy, love, and accomplishment of us as ill-deserving sinners in the process of conversion. Why? Because as we are weary, sister, and we are tired coming out of verses 12 and 13, and out of this long season of threatenings and exhortations, we must remember what the prophets were doing all during the Old Testament. And they're saying, look away from yourself. Look away from your, your own rebellions, your own hardening of heart, and look to His promises. He is faithful, not you. And this is what the writer is doing here in verse 14. He's encouraging you, young brother, by showing you that when you come out of verses 12 and 13, condemning yourself, that remember how you were made to possess such a Savior. It was by His sovereign love, His sovereign grace that opened your eyes and brought you into this covenant family to begin with. So while you're yet unfaithful, He will remain faithful. He will come and He will rescue. He will be the hand that clasps your hand when you stray too far and brings you back. There's a verse in the Bible, I've given it to you in your sermon notes, that pulls these two aspects wonderfully together that ought to again, beloved, be the first encouragement for you as a weary pilgrim. It brings together the sovereign love of God and our complete powerlessness, our complete defensivelessness is that a word? <laughs> You're working with me, okay. But it brings it together and it's supposed to encourage us. Look at Romans 5.8 where Paul, he brings this through. He says, God condemneth His love toward us. You see it? God takes that first step, doesn't He? God condemneth His love toward us. In that while we were yet sinners, Paul expresses elsewhere, sinners are dead. They're necros. They're dead in their trespasses and sins. That while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. By recalling God's effectual love, by recalling His grace in order to rescue us and to save us, are we not encouraged here in verse 14? Are we not strengthened? And do we not find confidence in His faithfulness in times of need? Do we not? We do. We do. And this is why we remind ourselves often, we're going to do it today, when we sing Psalms 42. What do we sing? Many of you may know it by heart. We sing, why restless? Why cast down my soul? Trust God and He'll employ His aid for thee and change these sighs, despair, to thankful hymns of joy. We look away from ourselves and we look, first of all, in this encouragement to the faithfulness of God in His Son Jesus of how we ever came into possession of this great high priest that He says in verse 14, seeing then that we have, we own, we possess a great high priest. Notice what He says in verse 14 about this great high priest that we have been given by the faithfulness of God. He says that He's passed into the heavens. Jesus, 
There's the description of His humanity. The Son of God. There's the description of His divinity. He has passed into the heavens. This brings us as pilgrims in this life into another blessed encouragement. And that is, as you see in your notes, the God-man. Jesus, the Son of God. He has risen. He has risen. He has passed through death. And He's in heaven at this very moment. Now, while we don't want to allow here at this portion of verse 14 to be a spoiler alert for us, His humanity and His divinity being described as a high priest because that's going to come really more into focus and we're going to get a more technicality of that as we go into chapter 5. We don't want it to be a spoiler alert for us because He was not just any high priest. He's described in this double description as a great high priest. We do at least want to recognize of what it's saying of Him passing into heaven And drink from the victorious fountain of what our high priest has accomplished. And that is the salvation of his church. How is that demonstrated? Well, it's demonstrated by the fact that his tomb is empty. He's passed into the heavens, the text says. Our great high priest sister is not in some coffin somewhere. Not in some cave somewhere. He's not in some black box or whatever the Muslims think. You know, they believe, sorry, I just displayed my ignorance there. They believe that he uh, right, uh, descended upon um, uh, the, the Mount Ararat there in... No, no, that's Moses. Okay, I'm getting in trouble here. They believe uh, Mohammed is not in a, in, a, in, a, in a box where they believe that he was called up into heaven in a supernatural event. Anyhow, the point is that we see that our Messiah has risen and he's in heaven now. That ought to be an encouragement for us. He has rose from the dead. You remember how dismayed the first women were who went to his grave and they were found weeping there at his tomb. And when they were asked, why are you weeping? They said, as recorded by Luke, we know not where they laid him. In other words, they thought that someone had stolen the body of the Lord Jesus Christ. But we see here in our text today, he wasn't stolen. No, he rose again and he passed through the heavens. He passed through the heavens. Now I want you to see something that's connected with what we have in this verse, that ought to be an encouragement to you, knowing that your Savior, your great high priest, who by the love of God reached out by His Spirit, grabbed your conscience, brought you into His family, gave you Christ, and now Christ is in, risen and in the, the heavens above. Look at what He's doing. Look at Rome, or Hebrews chapter 7, verse 25. What is He doing there? And this is why you should be encouraged as a pilgrim. Hebrews 7.25 tells us what he's doing there. Wherefore he is able also to save them to the uttermost. Can't wait till we get to that part. That come unto God by him, seeing he ever liveth. Why? Why does he liveth? Why is he in heaven right now? Why did he raise from the dead amongst other things? Why did he pass through the veil of death and is in heaven right now? It tells us why. To make intercession for them. That you and I. That you and I, who in chapter 4 are being exhorted to press forward in the faith. Be encouraged. God has given you Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ now is in heaven to make intercession for you. He is risen from the dead. And notice that that promise, that encouragement, it does hinge on the resurrection. If He did not rise from the dead, there would be no passing into heaven. It hinges on the resurrection. And so with that said... Beloved, the doctrine of the resurrection for the church, it can never be overstated. It can never be um, amplified by us too much, I guess is what I'm trying to say. The doctrine of the resurrection in the church of Christ can't become ever boring. And this is why we every day, or every Lord's Day, when we partake of the Lord's Supper, what do we do? We recognize the death the burial, and the resurrection of Christ because it's instrumental in our pilgrim journey to produce within us a lively hope that our Savior has risen from the dead. He's in the heavens with the Father and the Spirit upon the throne. And we saw today making intercession for us. There's a beautiful place in Scripture where Jesus' resurrection, His ascension, 
and his intercession that we just looked at in Hebrews chapter 7 is brought together in order when it's embraced by us by faith to produce within us an encouraging and lively hope. Christ's ascension and Christ's intercession that's being talked about here in Hebrews 4, 14 is to produce an encouragement in us. I've given it to your notes. I want to look at it together with you. First Peter, it's chapter 1, verses 3 and 5, where the resurrection, ascension, and intercession all come together. He says there, as inspired by God's Spirit, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, which according to His abundant mercy, there it is again, it's God's mercy, little ones, of how we ever become Christians, which according to His abundant mercy hath begotten us again unto a lively hope. How does He do it? The text says, by the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. You see, what we're seeing here in chapter 4, verses 14, of Him pointing us to the fact that Jesus has passed into the heavens, hinges upon the resurrection. It's calling forth before their minds part of the gospel message that they said they've already professed and believed. And that is that He has been buried, He has risen, and He will come again in glory. And it's intended to produce a lively hope within us as Christians, especially when we feel as though we are apathetic and defeated by the penetrating x-ray of God's Word. Notice, continuing here in the reading of 1 Peter, the promised inheritance. Verse 4. Alive in hope by the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance incorruptible and undefiled and that fadeth not away reserved in heaven for you who are kept by the power of God through faith unto salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. You see why I said all of it comes together right there? It's God begetting us. It's Him taking the first step of calling us unto Himself. It's Him giving us a lively hope by pointing us to the resurrection of Christ who, verse 14 says, has passed through into the heavens. And it's meant to encourage us to know that He will keep us. That He will keep us. We have a third exhortation in verse 14. We see that we have possession of this great high priest and we recall and encourage thereby how we obtained that possession. We see and we are encouraged by the fact that the text says that he's passed into the heavens, that he has risen from the dead. Glory be to God, our Savior ever liveth and he is interceding for us we know in the heavens right now. Ah, but look at the third exhortation and surprisingly, it comes in the form of an exhortation. I say surprisingly because sometimes an exhortation doesn't have an encouragement, does it? But I saw in this exhortation what I believe is an encouragement. I want to show you how I get there. He says in verse 14, let us hold fast our profession. Let us hold fast our profession. I believe that this gives us an encouragement because it demonstrates for us, listen closely, the realistic expectations of this risen great high priest. That's an encouragement to me. It's an encouragement to me. Watch this. The writer here again draws into focus for these people that they have made a profession. Now remember when we looked at how he's using this word profession, confession, it means much more than just a surface recital of a creed or some kind of external adherence to religious beliefs. No, you recall that after showing them how they were given Christ and how they were brought into the family of God, made sons of glory in chapter 2 that we just looked at, do you remember how in chapter 3, verse 1, he immediately did what? He exhorted them to now consider Christ your apostle and high priest whom you have professed. And when we looked at that, he was saying, you have confessed with your mouth that in the deepest parts of your heart, this has been made real by the power of the Holy Spirit. And you remember, he's treating them based upon their profession that 
I'm, I'm just going to give you the benefit of the doubt that your profession's real, but now let me share with you these exhortations. And you remember how he amplified the exhortation about their profession in verse number 6. He said one way that you're going to demonstrate that you really are called of God, that you really have experienced the salvation that I described in chapter 2, is that you will, he said in verse 6, hold fast the confidence and the rejoicing of the hope firm unto the end. And if you don't hold fast to that confidence, that conditional clause should scare the living daylights out of you because it means, beloved, what it means. And I'm not going to take the teeth out of God's Word. It means that if you don't hold that confidence to the very end, you are demonstrating you're not one of His. But do you remember what the confidence the Word meant? It meant in the Greek that verbal boldness to proclaim verbally what baptism portrays and claims visually, symbolically, that I have been buried with Christ and I have been raised anew, spiritually speaking, unto the newness of life. That's what that confession, that's what that profession meant. And that's what it means here in chapter 4, verse 14. He's saying, you have a great, risen, high priest in heaven right now making intercession for you. And I'm going to exhort you to hold fast to that profession. He's already told you if you don't hold fast, then he's not your high priest. But hold fast to it. Now how can this exhortation impossibly be an encouragement? Well, it helps us to understand a little bit what hold fast means. What's he talking about here with this word in the Greek, krateo, that he's using? I've given it to you in your notes. He's telling you, with this profession that you say you've experienced, keep it carefully. Keep it faithfully. Even, you see the second meaning of it, even if it leads to death, holding on to it. Notice as a third shade of meaning with the word hold fast, translated hold fast. Master it. What, what do you mean master my profession? Well, learn more about what you profess. Don't just, you know, take the, 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 the milk and be content with the milk, beloved. And this is what the writer of Hebrews is going to exhort them later to do. Obviously, there were some in this church, you know, that had the pastor sign their card that they were baptized on a certain day and they folded it up and put it in their back pocket and they didn't care anything else more about the faith. They thought sermons were boring. They thought exegeting text and unpacking definitions was just kind of exasperating. You know, they, they, they don't got time for that, right? I need to get home and watch the game. No. He's telling us, hold fast. Keep it. You know, guard it, even if it means death. And so we gather from this exhortation, this encouragement. While you are on this pilgrim journey, so either the Lord returns or in death you lay your body in the ground and you're in His presence. There is one expectation of Him for you. And it's only one. That you would hold on to this profession of faith. Now, why do I say that's an encouragement? Why do I say that this what appears to be somewhat of a simplistic exhortation. Hold on to it. Well, I say that because sometimes I think some of us believe depending perhaps what is coming or emanating from with our own hearts or from what other people maybe are putting on top of us or who we're listening to. I think some of us believe that we are the ones who were given the Spirit without measure. But beloved, in John chapter 3 verse 34 Jesus Christ is the only one that's been described as giving the power of God's Spirit without measure. <laughs> now, me and you have, oh yes, power in the Spirit. But beloved, it's with measure. It's with measure. And so you and I have to, if we're doing this, stop beating ourselves up under condemnation. Oh, that we're not doing this. And oh, that we're not doing that. 
to advance the wonderful aspects of the kingdom of Christ. Oh, I'm just a mother. Oh, I just raised children. Oh, I'm just a dad. Oh, I just get up every day and I go through the whole hum-shum of bringing home the bacon, earning an honest living. I am not really doing anything good to serve the Lord Jesus Christ. Sure, it worked. They all know I'm a Christian. Sure, it worked when something comes up and, and, and I bring some biblical truth to the conversation. Or when, when someone challenges me on the faith, I'll say, hey, you know, I'm a Christian. This is the truth of the gospel. You either like it or take it, but it's who I am. Oh, sure, I do that. But I don't, I don't do anything else than that. That's all I do. Stop beating yourself up. Be encouraged that you're doing what Christ has prepared for you to do in the age and in the life you're doing. I say this often, and I'm going to say it here again because I think it's worth repeating, that oftentimes it is the small and the basic elements of our faith that we are called to do that most of us as followers of Jesus Christ neglect the most. Living a loving, a kind, a caring, gracious-filled life and simply sacrificing for other people and trying to do that without hypocrisy, trying to do that without a charade, or as AJ said this morning with the Pharisees, trying to draw attention to ourselves when we do it good, even though we don't do it good all the time. Christ's expectations for us are realistic. Hold your profession of faith until I return. That's an encouragement for me. Because sometimes I can be my own worst condemner. Christ isn't condemning me. The Word of God's not condemning me. The Holy Spirit certainly is not condemning me. But I condemn myself. What matters the most to Him is that I, when He returns, or until I lay my head down in death, profess and proclaim Him as Lord and in Savior. I don't know about you, but that's an encouragement for me. That's encouragement for me. I've given you before we walk away from this encouragement and note in your sermon handout, be careful not to condemn yourself with expectations that come from either within or from other people, but which Christ does not demand nor expect. Because unbalanced, extra-biblical expectations are toxic and they'll sap the joy and the peace from your faith. But let's be very clear at this point about something. What I just said, I don't want to be misunderstood. And I certainly don't want to purport that this text is in any way teaching passivity. Because that's, that's what we were looking at last week, that we're to avoid at all cost. But it does give us a blessed, realistic perspective of what matters the most in the eyes of Him who has saved us and who is waiting for us and who intercedes for us. That we hold we grow in, we learn in this profession of faith, even if it were to mean we were to die in it. I think that's an encouragement. Well, let us all just be honest for a moment as we move on here. To accomplish even here what appears to be some sort of a, a minimal expectation of holding fast, every time we open God's Word, as I mentioned earlier, we're completely undone. It's sharp, it's piercing with its moral exactness. And we rightly conclude, who of us in here could even do that? Who of us can even hold the profession of our faith unto the end? Well, none of us without Christ helping us. And this moves us to further encouragements found in verse 15, where we find that Jesus sympathizes with our weariness and our obstacles as those who can barely even hold on to the profession of faith to the end. And this ought to encourage you this morning. We have not a high priest, 15 says, which cannot be touched with the feeling of our infirmities, but was in all points tempted like as we are, yet without sin. Now regarding the theological accuracies 
with how and in what way Jesus was in all points tempted as we are yet without sin, we amply already handled that when we looked at chapter 2, verse 18, where the same truth is taught. We unpacked it there. If I remember, it took almost a whole sermon to just really help us to understand how is he tempted like us, you know? However, and so what I'm saying is, is I, I'm not going to really get down into that here today. However, though, we can't ignore that the writer does stress it here again, that he's tempted like us. But notice that he does so in this encouragement ending of this paragraph in chapter 4 in connection with the first half of the verse, which focuses upon something that this great high priest cannot do. What do you mean the high priest cannot do, Pastor Doug? Well, look at verse 15. We have not a high priest which cannot be touched with the feeling of our infirmities. He cannot be touched with them. Having already treated Jesus, the nature of Jesus' temptation, let's consider what appears to be this limitation of some sort under the heading, as you see in your notes, Christ empathy. Christ empathy. That the text on the surface says cannot be touched with our infirmities. The verse starts off with what's called a double negative. Look at the verse. The first one we see, this, the first negative, we have not a high priest. The second negative, which cannot. We have not, and he cannot be touched with the feeling of our infirmities. Now the rules of grammar are such that a set of double negatives automatically cancel each other out. And while I know we're not here for an English lesson or anything, we should want to care about the rules of grammar because what's being emphasized here, what's emphatically being done by this inspired writer who we've already recognized knows how to use the, the Greek language of his time. He's emphatically stressing and he's teaching us here this, that Jesus by his own will, that Jesus by his own determination chooses, rather obligates himself to perpetually and empathetically concern himself with the weariness of us as his pilgrims. So it really could be paraphrased this way. It would be totally right to do it. It's transliterated here. That's why it's a double negative. But it could be paraphrased this way, and it would be fine. We do possess a high priest who is touched and empathizes with the feelings of our infirmities. Now, under this heading, I purposefully chose the word empathy rather than compassion. I, I, I'm seeking to encourage your hearts with verse 15 of Christ's empathy, not as compassion. But why am I doing that? Not to bore you with English again, but look at your definitions in your handout. What's the word compassion mean? Well, we have from... The Webster Dictionary, 1828, it means a suffering with another. Suffering alongside with another person is the idea. Uh, compassion means you, you, you have a painful sympathy with that person. A sensation of sorrow excited by distresses or misfortunes of another. So it would be like me looking at you, Grizz. You know, you sit closest to the front, so it's always easy to use you as an illustration. Um, so it'd be like me seeing you go through a hard time. And I can, because I love you as a brother in Christ, I can really sympathize with you and feel compassion towards you. Right? I mean, I wouldn't just be able to sleep good at night. You'd be on my mind. I'd be praying for you, checking in, seeing could I help out in any way. But notice now the definition of empathy tied with and connected to how Jesus Christ, as we learned in chapter 2, verse 18, is tempted in all manner like we are, His humanness. Notice what empathy carries with it. It goes just a layer deeper than compassion. Oh, I hope it blesses your souls. Empathy means the ability to identify with or understand another one's situation or feelings. The intellectual identification of the thoughts, the feelings, or the state of another person. You see, one's kind of looking from the outside and going, boy, you know, I've never been in that situation before. I don't know, you know, what he's going through, but I have compassion on him. The other one says, I can empathize with him. 
I can empathize with what it feels like to be tempted. I can empathize with what it feels like when I lose a loved one. I can empathize. I can internally identify and know how your heart is broken. This is what he's saying here. And so Christ, the risen Savior, wants you to be encouraged that when you're going through whatever it is that you will go through in this life, that He can empathize with you. When in your failures, He never had any, that's clear in the text, but in your failures, when you begin to doubt, when you begin to question the plan of God, and you're tempted to walk away from the faith, Christ as a man, beloved, He can empathize with that. What do you think the Garden of Gethsemane was all about? That was Jesus as a man. Scientifically, it's demonstrated that you can sweat blood, but you can only sweat blood when you're pushed as a human to the greatest extent and limits of your physical body of being under stress and pressure. That you will actually, through the pores of your skin, start to excrete blood drops. That's what Christ means when He says, I can be touched with your infirmities. So immediately what that does, our understanding of Him as the risen God-man in His splendor and in all of His glory, it takes Him from that lofty, lofty throne and brings Him down next to me as a brother and a friend who knows what I am going through. I like how Robert Paul Martin in his commentary on Hebrews described the fact that this was Jesus' whole earthly life. He said it, it was a, one of a temptation that at its very root was always an enticement before Jesus to turn away from the Word I would say covenant, the word, the covenant and the will of his father who sent him. And nowhere was that battle more intense. I just lifted it up before our eyes, the Garden of Gethsemane, but I guess Dr. Martin here is right. It would have been most intense at Calvary where he was crucified. According to 2 Corinthians 13, he was crucified in weakness. Jesus wasn't on the cross, dear friends. As some super hero macho man. He was as a man broken, bleeding, hurting, at times scared, doubting, tempted to recant. But he didn't. He didn't. And so no matter what you go through, he can empathize with you. He knows. He knows. This has, I believe, this encouragement of Christ's empathy, a great corrective weight to it. What do I mean by corrective weight? Well, it tends to correct our understanding in modern times of Jesus. You see, sometimes we paint this picture in the modern church of Jesus being our chum and our pal. You know, you hear me say it sometimes. I'm, I'm, I apologize if I wear you out with it, but you know, you see the shirt say, Jesus is my homeboy. That's what I mean. Like that, that's, that's like way extreme on one side of, the, of a bad understanding of Jesus. But then in light of this text and what you ought to be encouraged by, some of us can have a, an understanding of Jesus that he's waiting in heaven, just waiting to pounce on us. When we take one wrong step, he's got this long rod that he's going to reach out of heaven and just smack you with. No. Jesus knows your frailty. He knows your weakness. And He empathizes with all of your pain and He empathizes with your desire to want to walk in righteousness, want to walk in faithfulness, but you fall. And He sends His Spirit and He reminds you in His Word, those who ask for forgiveness, I'll forgive them, I'll give grace. Come unto Me, ye who are heavy and weary laden. And I will give you rest. And he picks you back up, doesn't he? Oh, how could you have done that? Didn't you hear the sermon? Didn't you take the notes? Didn't you take them home and study them for eight hours? 
Didn't you take another 20 hours and expound everything that you know, the pastor gave you in a skeleton form and take it much further? He doesn't do that, does he? No, he doesn't do that. Dear friends, he picks you up. He dusts you off. And he says, I understand what it's like being a man. I understand what it's like to doubt. I understand what it's like to be tempted. This is who we have waiting for us, interceding for us in heaven is an empathetic intercessor on our behalf. Are you encouraged by that? What is it in your life this week? Perhaps that you need to be reminded of the empathy of Christ in your own failures. Come afresh at the, at the foot of the fountain here in this text this morning and see and understand that He understands what, it li- what it's like to be tempted unto anger, to be tempted to unforgiveness, to bitterness, etc., etc. But He resisted it perfectly, morally perfectly. I love the passages. You have them in your handout that draws this, I think, balanced understanding of our great high priest in heaven before our eyes. He is, here's the balanced view. There's a lot of books written today about Jesus. You know, it seems like the church is struggling with getting an understanding, a right understanding of the nature of Jesus and, you know, uh, his dealings with the church. Here's a beautiful place right here, beloved, in verse 15, 14 and 15. He is a great high priest. Oh, he's majestic. Hannah, he is glorious. He is so powerful. In verse 10 of chapter 4, He has finished His work of redemption that the Father sent Him to do to pay a ransom for all of those who would come unto Him and believe in Him. You see, Hannah, Jesus has done that. And He is worthy of all of our adoration, all of our worship, all of creation, Hannah. Does, they, they, they are owing to Christ. They are owing to Christ the praise that He is due. The birds, the tree, everything should be worshiping Christ for the work that He did upon the cross. But while He is our great high priest in that majestic, lofty lofty view, here's the perfect balanced view of Jesus. Yes, you should reverence Him. Yes, you should honor Him. But remember also, He's your brother and friend. John 15, 13. Greater love hath no man than this, than a man lay his life down for his friends. And then just a few verses down, he identifies himself as their friends. An empathetic brother who knows what it's like to get tired. Henceforth, I call you not servants, for the servant knoweth not what his Lord doeth. But I have called you friends. For all things that I have heard of my Father, I have made known unto you. We now can come in to the last encouragement in verse 16 a little better. Because if we have this glorious high risen priest who is also empathetic, a real true brother and friend, we understand that the encouragement to come to the throne of grace It's not just an invitation to a friend to come over and have a meal, but it's a permission from a sovereign, majestic king that allows you to be his friend. Do you see the balance there? That's the balanced view of Jesus for the modern church. He is the King of kings, the Lord of lords, all glorious, but he's also a humble, meek Lord. Look at verse 16. Let us therefore then, the inspired writer says, Come boldly unto the throne of grace. And the boldly there, it isn't this cocky, high-minded attitude. Of course not, especially coming out of chapter 3 and chapter 4 and then just getting cut to pieces in verses 12 and 13. Of course it's not some proud attitude. No, but what he's saying, now that you understand and have a right view of Jesus Christ upon the throne, come, come to Him. He wants you to come today. What is it on your heart? What is it in your struggle? What is it in the pressures from inside and outside? I'm inviting you. You, as one of my blood-bought children, have a privilege, Sarah, that everyone else in the world, whether or not they lift up the the name of Jesus or they pray to Him or not, they don't have. They are not one of His children. The Old Testament repletes itself talking about this. Someone out here can pray all they want. 
But if they are not one of the blood-covered children of God, God does not hear their prayers. But we, here in verse 16, should be encouraged. He has sought us, verse 14. He has bought us, chapter 2. And now He permits us. He permits us. He wants us. He desires us as His friend, as His brother, to come and ask of me anything you want. To continue the walk and the pilgrim journey that I know you're tired in doing. Because I'm here, I'm able, and I will supply, and I will give you the rest. I will give you the persevering strength. I will ensure that you will make it into the eternal Sabbath rest. Come boldly, children. Come unto me. I did all of this for the glory of my Father and to dispense and give you that all that I have. This is one of those passages, friends, that helps someone who is languishing in that, 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 that iron cage of condemnation and of, and, and, and of unbelief and, 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 and just it, it, it has them hold and on and they think there's no more grace for me. I've sinned too much. Verses 12 and 13 further condemn me. Oh, is this as if it were, verses 12 and 13, were the tablets of stone from Moses coming every day crushing down upon my head and Christ says, Come unto me boldly that you may obtain mercy. Emphasizing the truth that's in Ephesians 2, verse 18, that you may find grace to help in a time of need. Now you see why I entitled this sermon Encouragement for Pilgrims. I don't know about you, but these encouragements are going to help us persevere unto the end that we enter into that Sabbath rest. And so the believer here today, I don't know where you're at. I know where I'm at. And I know how I, the Lord was speaking to me through this text. But where are you at? Where is it meeting you today? And what you need to bring before your merciful, empathetic, great, sovereign high priest, King Jesus, and lay before His throne. Ask and petition Him for help and for grace to pick yourself up and to move forward. To help you to slay those dragons. To help you to kill those sins. What is it? He's here. He's waiting for you, believer. For the non-believer who possibly could be listening to this message or lest we be deceived as amongst us today. I emphasized in verse 14 how that as Christians... God has called us into His family by the cross of Jesus Christ and we have in our possession the greatest gift that any human being, any created, animated piece of dust could have. A great high priest in heaven who is watching over us, helping us, lead us, guide us, preserve us. And what do you have, non-believer? You may have your riches here on earth. You may have popularity. You may have pleasure. Pleasure unbounded, especially here in the West. We compare ourselves to other third world countries. They can't even get a clean glass of water, let alone an ice cream. Is that all you have? All of that on that day when you will have to reckon with your Maker. We'll all be burned up. We'll all be burned up. And I would present before the conscience of the unbeliever, if it's not hardened to the point to be so obstinate and closed off from any voice of truth, does any of those things truly bring you the comfort that's being presented for you today in Christ? One who can truly empathize with you. Your unbelieving friends can't do that. Your drinking buddies can't do that. No one can do that. Except for Christ. Brother. Brethren. Brothers and sisters. Aren't you humbled afresh 
by the call of God into your hearts to bring you in relationship to your empathetic high priest this morning. Praise be to God. So now moving forward, friends, we're going to continue to focus on the high priest of Christ. It's wonderful covenant theology that's going to come through. There's wonderful aspects, again, of his intercession for us. And so for the next five chapters, we just just to swim in these truths. And I hope it's a blessing to your heart. I hope today was just an introduction, you know, as an encouragement for us as his people. With that said, let's go to the Lord in prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank You, O God, that as we read this morning in chapter 2, it was fitting for You. It became You your, your, in all of Your wisdom to devise such a wonderful plan of redemption for ill-deserving sinners such as us. We thank You that Your Word, it is so harmonious and balanced. Lord, as last week we walk away from verses 12 and 13, Potentially, O Lord, feeling a heavy weight of our own failures today in Your Word, You bless us and You encourage us by pointing us to the all-sufficient Savior. I pray, O God, that Your people today, no matter where You meet them at in their lives, would be lifted up and they would walk away today, O God, looking unto Christ, the great High Priest who is inviting us, permitting us, to come to His ever-flowing fount of mercy and grace to enable us to continue this pilgrim journey. Blessed be Your holy name. Thank You for all things that have been said and done thus far in today's service. We do, Lord. We truly do. Please know our hearts. In the context of the international community and the persecutions we see around the world, oh God, hear us, please. We do thank You that we are able to meet here today and to worship You in peace and quietness. We do not take that for granted, Lord. Know our hearts. Help us as Your people, Lord. We bless You and we thank You. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.